Okay, so this afternoon I want to reflect more on this third way of establishing mindfulness, being mindful of the mind, mindful of the heart, and being aware that, you know, this is clearly a very essential part of developing an understanding of what moves us through our life. You know, as the Buddha put it, you know, mind is the forerunner of all things. With our, with our, with our thoughts, we create the world. All that we are arises with our thoughts. In the Satipatthana Sutta, the way of contemplating mind is actually quite specific, and it's a sense of contemplating the state of your mind, the climate of your mind, not so much the cognitive element. And it's interesting, I was teaching recently, and you know, someone was really asking, why, why isn't there more said about thought? in the Satipatthana Sutta, you know, where is the cognitive element in the Satipatthana Sutta? And apart from the fact that the Buddha didn't talk about any, everything in any one single discourse, I think it's because we see the direct relationship between our thoughts and our states of mind. And if we take care of the mental state, we are taking care of our stories and our narratives. But before I go into this more, I want to spend a little bit of time just reflecting on the kind of core attitude that we bring to our retreat, to our sitting, to our walking, um, to being here. I think doing a longer retreat, you know, can both be a delight and also, there can be a certain sense of pressure in, on it, you know, because it, it's a big thing. It's a big thing, you know. You're going to go home and the end of a two weeks or the end of a month and someone's going to ask you, you know, what was your retreat like? And, you know, you may feel that there's some pressure that you have to produce something, you know. You have to produce some package of insights or some package of attainment. So it can feel like quite a big undertaking that brings with it or can easily bring with it certain expectations of what should happen or what I should really, you know, make peace with or what I should really be liberated from. And, you know, some months ago I, I was teaching here and someone said to me, and I, they wouldn't mind me sharing this, that, um, it was the first retreat they'd done after 20 years of practice when they didn't have an issue they were working on, or they didn't bring an issue into the retreat to work on. Sorry, that's more accurate. That they didn't bring an issue into the retreat to work on. Um, maybe some of you have done that. I don't know. If you have, I would encourage you to lay that one down. Because I think it's so fascinating to me to look at the kind of attitudes, the kind of orientation that we bring into our practice. And there, it's generally a tendency from our life. And I see that there's two orientations that I observe in, in people practicing. And I think one of them comes from the, the 
tradition of the Dharma, the Buddha's teachings of liberation. And the other one, I think, is very much a Western import, although you do see it in Asia to some extent. So the orientation that I think is an import into the practice, and one that I don't feel is helpful, is the idea of working on things. Working on things. The things I have to work on. It's generally a list of my imperfections, you know, or what I perceive to be my imperfections. You know, so I might be working on my anger, or I might be working on my lust, or I might be working on my greed, or I might be working on my distractedness. So generally we can have, and this can be quite historical, from a sort of historical overview of identity. You know, this is who I am, and this is my imperfect self, and I need to work on these things in order to be more acceptable and lovable and a very good meditator and all of those things. Um, but it, it's, so some of that is a historical kind of self-identity picture. And some of it is kind of constructed and reconstructed moment to moment. You know, there's some uh, flash of agitation. Oh, I really need to work on that. You know, there's a, I'm too many times the first in the lunch line, and, you know, I really need to work on that, you know, or I'm way too sleepy, and I really, really need to work on that, you know. So sometimes these are the projects that we kind of generate on a daily basis through how we're reading our experience, and to some extent on how we're identified with the contents of our experience. Now, I, I often, you know, actually teaching in the West is the only place I've ever come across where the work, words work and meditation are used interchangeably. Um, you know, and I have this idea of people coming into the hall, you know, with their toolbox and their overalls, and they're, they're ready to get to work, you know, they're really ready to get to work. And I, I think there are some weaknesses with this view, I, I just want to point out. I think the basic weakness is that it's based upon clinging to a sense of self formed by imperfection. That's a basic weakness. Uh, the, another weakness I would point out is I think this, this list is potentially endless. You know, because as long as there is a kind of sense of centralized me, I may be successful in working on something or working something out, but as long as that centralized me is in place, I am actually being prone and bound to pick up a new imperfection to replace the one that's been resolved. So it's actually good. Uh, there's, there's other weaknesses in, in this view, and, and this view can be quite subtle, actually. Um, the other weakness is that it, it often creates quite a lot of forcing and striving. And, and the parameters of success and failure in this view are quite strong. You know, have I worked on something? Has it gone? Has it disappeared? You know, has it gone away? If it's still there, that must be a sign of failure. You know, if there's a temporary abeyance, so that must be a, a, a sign that my work is really being very successful and I'm actually getting somewhere. So there tends to be a lot of judgment tied up with this view. But I also kind of feel the joylessness of it. I feel the joylessness of it. And, you know, bearing in mind how much the human mind is pretty much hardwired to highlight what is wrong rather than what is well, prone to highlight what is imperfect 
rather than what is easeful. That kind of hard wiring makes this view, I think, somewhat attractive and somewhat magnetic. But I think it is a joyless view of practice. You know, I, I, I think, how does anybody ever, ever sustain a practice? You know, if they look at their cushion every time and see, oh, there's another hour of work to show up for, you know. Oh, it's another, you know, another hour of battle, you know, another hour of enduring or another hour of trying to fix something. And I, I think of the joylessness of that and how little it is, it is really a foundation for delighting in the practice, delighting in the practice. Now, if we take away this idea of work, what do we have left? We have left what I think of what the Buddha actually taught, which is to cultivate and to bring into being that which is skillful, that which is wholesome, that which is liberating, that which gladdens the mind and that which gladdens the heart. And, you know, in my reading of the text, I do truly sense that this is the orientation of the practice and the teaching. It's not concerned with annihilation, it's concerned with nurturing the seeds of the lovely, the seeds of the delightful, the seeds of the liberating that actually do live in every human heart. So it's kind of useful to think of how it would be to come into a sitting period or how it would be to begin a walking period to actually think this is a time of cultivating. This is a time of bringing into being that which is possible for each of us. Um, in, as far as I can see in practice, this is actually far more effective than the path of annihilation of the difficult. It is actually by strengthening our capacities and cultivating our capacities for calmness, for equanimity, for kindness, for compassion, for spaciousness, that these are the, the qualities that actually do the relinquishing, that actually do the unbinding. I have long given up on the idea that I'm going to let go of anything at all. Personally, I think it's kind of an absurdity you know, that we spend years, months and years contemplating anatta, contemplating non-self in the practice, you know, seeing that experientially, seeing how a sense of self is shaped moment to moment. And then still we have this very bizarre imagining that I, am, I have a little bit of self left in here, a good one, that's going to come forth and let go. Which is why for most people in practice, you know, their endless and shouting at themselves to let go of things is generally ineffective. I mean, it really doesn't work very well. You could do that from morning to night, shout at yourself to let go, and you will st there will still be clinging. But by cultivating calm, by cultivating spaciousness, by cultivating equanimity, kindness, what we're actually cultivating are the conditions of heart, the conditions of mind, in which relinquishment and unbinding and letting go, if we use that word, actually happens. So it's not centralizing a, a kind of sense of me doing this. It's cultivating the conditions that incline the heart towards non-stickiness. And personally, I think that this is actually an intentionality 
um, that deeply affects our mind states, our states of mind, because there is a gladness in that. There is a joyfulness in that. There is a sense of, of part, a participatory engagement in our own practice, in our own process of the moment, rather than feeling that the, the flowering of the lovely is somehow going to come later after I've got rid of all the, that which is imperfect. I don't, I don't think this is a helpful orientation. You know, suffer now for a future reward you know, or toil away now for future sense of ease, you know, or, or really get involved and engaged in some heavy-duty annihilation of the imperfect so that, you know, next week or next month, oh, yeah, all those wonderful qualities are going to magically appear as a result or as a reward. Now, this doesn't mean a sacrifice of effort because there's a great deal of effort involved in cultivating there's a great deal of intentionality. Um, there's a great deal of commitment and dedication. But actually those are also qualities that are lovely when they're liberated from being the sort of possessions of, or, the, or even the weapons of a kind of centralized sense of self. So I do think it is useful as the days go on here to actually really have a sense of where your orientation is, sitting to sitting, walking to walking, day to day. What is actually being cultivated? Bearing in mind that if we are not intentionally, consciously engaged in that cultivation, it's more likely that we're going to be unconsciously engaged and unconsciously practicing habit patterns that are not helpful. So to come back a little bit more to this contemplation of states of mind. Now you've probably noticed um, that there's quite a big crossover between the third way of establishing mindfulness and the fourth foundation or way of establishing mindfulness. Because as it's already been talked about here, the hindrances really come under this umbrella also of being states of mind. And, you know, I, and, I, and I see that tension, a little bit of a tension involved in waking up. I don't think it's a negative tension. But often we're very cultivating the, the liberating and the healing and the lovely in the midst of the hindrance factors, which can be very, very powerful mind states, by the way, in case you haven't noticed. But not all of the hindrances in themselves are mental states. I mean, three of them are. I mean, you can certainly see the mind state of sloth and torpor, can't you? I mean, it becomes a whole climate of mind, you know. It's, it's a whole state of mind. It's a mood of density, you know, if not sleep. I mean, certainly you can see sloth and torpor as a mind state. You can see aversion as a state of mind, can't you? You can feel that as a mood, as, as a mental state. Um, you can feel agitation, uh, restlessness, as a state of mind. But the other two hindrances of craving and doubt, I don't think of them as mind states. I think of them as being expressions of mind states. Because craving is, is very much the expression of a mind state of discontent, isn't it? It's, it's not good enough, you know, it, it, it is something is amiss, something's lacking. 
and then the symptom of that is craving. I don't really think of doubt as being a state of mind, but I, I see it as almost like a, a, a kind of combination mind state. You know, because it has when it, with it certainly the mind state of aversion, it has the mind state of discontent, and it has the mind state of anxiety. But basically the instructions are that whatever one is doing, whatever posture you are in, whether moving or acting, whether being still or engaged, to be aware of the state of your mind. Chitta. To be aware of the state of your mind. It is a very, very useful exercise. When you begin a sitting, when you end a sitting, when you begin a walking, when you end a walking, when you go to a meal, when you eat, what is the state of my mind? Because our mind states actually become our world of the moment. Our mind states become our world of the moment. It is how we perceive, how we interpret, how we react, is always through the lens of our mind states. Now, being aware, there's, there's so, so many different moods, so many different mental states in a single day, aren't there? And they can change so quickly. You know, you can walk outside a sunny day, you know. Life looks good, you know. It, the mind state lifts, it, it, it's a sense of gladness, a sense of appreciation, you know. The bunnies hop across the lawn, you know. And, and you know, life just basically looks really good. But of course, if the mind state is very contracted, very aversive, even in the same conditions, the world looks very different, doesn't it? It's, oh, you know, English weather, you know, can't rely on it, it's probably going to rain in an hour or so, you know. You might not even see what is around you. You know, the bunnies are just, you know, lettuce eaters, you know. I mean, there's nothing good that's going on, you know, in my world. When the mind state is very contracted, there's not much good that's going on in my world. So it is so important to appreciate the power of our states of mind to shape our world of the moment, to shape my sense of self of the moment, to shape my thoughts of the moment, and to shape my perceptions of the moment. And whenever the Buddha talked about understanding the world, he was always talking about understanding the world of experience. Because it is your mind state that makes something your world. It's your mind state, your mood, that makes something your world. It's not a universal world. It's my world of the moment. So within this spectrum of mental states that can change very rapidly, you know, there is much that is, that are truly lovely. You know, the, those mental states of appreciation, of generosity, of calm, of kindness, of spaciousness. And you will notice that both in, in, the, in the, those lovely states of mind, both the, the intensity of the narrative fades. There's not so much story about them. You know, you don't have a big kind of analysis of why I'm calm, you know, or, you know, why I'm appreciative. Also, this volume of selfing really lowers. 
That is the nature of those states of mind which are lovely, which are liberating. And a lot in the Buddhist teaching, of course, is the encouragement to cultivate those qualities, to cultivate those, those ways of seeing and those ways of being. There are many that are not so lovely and actually that are quite challenging and difficult to be with. And of course, many people have developed a historical expertise in particular mind states, you know, whether it's a mind state of irritability or a mind state of, of low mood, depression, or a mind state of worry, anxiety. Sometimes these are generational mind states. You know, we've learned about them. We've learned to, you know, we've inherited that tendency to live within certain states of mind. And some of them we have forged ourselves through life experience, to the extent, of course, that those mind states become part of our personal description. You know, we say, I'm a, I'm a very anxious person. It means I have a persistent mind state, you know, or I'm a very angry person. You know, I have a persistent mind state of aversion, you know, or I'm a, ver I'm a very impatient person. No, I have a persistent mind state. But with their repetition, of course, moods get co-opted into self-description, which is simply symptomatic of the amount of clinging that is going on to those mind states. So we see that our world, we see the world through our mind states. Our perceptions are covered by our mind states. The world is interpreted according to our state of mind, and then we react to the world on the basis of those interpretations. Okay, so, you know, you can think of many, many examples of that, you know, perhaps lunch runs out one day, you know, and here comes that familiar mind state of anxiety, you know, and I, and I start to perceive through that, you know, oh, I never get enough, you know, well, I'll certainly fix that, I'll I'll be there 10 minutes early tomorrow, you know. So there's a, that behavioral aspect of mind states. And it's really useful to see there is a behavioral aspect to many, many of our mind states. I mean, you look at the mind of sloth and torpor, look at the behavioral aspect of that. I go to sleep. You, know, you look at the, the behavioral aspect of agitation, and, and, and restlessness, you know, my, my eyes are hungry, you know, the notice board is fascinating, you know, there's a lot of things to do in my room. Um, you know, we notice the behavioral aspect, you know, we, we notice the behavioral aspect of aversion, you know, that tendency to close down, to, to shut out, you know, to defend against things. So it is always useful to, you know, it is why such a false separation is made between mind and body, because we can see that our mind states are constantly sending signals to our bodies, and then in turn, our bodies are returning those signals to the mind state to deepen them, to intensify them, to solidify them. And if that kind of return journey is made enough times, we usually end up in a place of a conclusion about how the world is, about how I am, and about how you are. So it is really useful to, to see how these mind states begin to emerge. 
you know, the momentary ones. You know, think of that very simple formula in, in, the, in the Buddhist teaching, that what we contact, we feel, what we feel, we perceive, what we perceive, we proliferate about, what we proliferate about, we dwell upon, and what we dwell upon, we become. Okay, that very simple formula about how our world of experience in the moment is actually constructed. So contact, you know, through my eyes, through my ears, through my mind. Perhaps I make contact with a, a difficult thought, an unpleasant memory. It has the feeling of, of sadness or the feeling of... of uh, regret or guilt or shame or, or whatever in it. What I contact, I feel it's unpleasant. When it's unpleasant, I proliferate about it. So I'm trying to, you know, I'm, I'm perceiving it, I'm pinning it down, or that, that's that unpleasant person in my life, you know, that's, it's that, that happened to me. When I perceive, I think about it. So I start to fill in the details, don't I? Where do you see the mind state actually entering? What I proliferate about, I dwell upon. What I dwell upon becomes the shape of my mind. So mind states do have a process of being constructed. They just don't arrive unannounced. You know, and part of the practice, of course, is to slow down the process enough that we begin to see that constructing process happening so that we don't end up in that place of conclusion that says, I am and you are. These triggers can be so quick. You know, you, you, you hear the, the bell at the end of a sitting, you know, oh, it might be pleasant, you know, thank goodness for that. It's over, you know, released, you know. Then, you know, if there's that sense here of, of a, that's a pleasant sound, you know, it's signaling my, my my, my exit pass, you know. And, and if we sort of proliferate about that, that was, a, you know, that was a difficult sitting, you know, and I don't want any more of those, you know, and, and start to build up a sense of dread, you know, and, oh, there's that schedule. It, it, it's really important to see those contact moments and begin to see that process of constructing. You know, you have a twinge in your shoulder. It's unpleasant. And then we start to label it, you know, it's my sore shoulder. Oh, and all my sore shoulders through my life are returning. You know, they're, they're on their way back, you know, and pretty soon, you know, I'm going to have a terrible retreat because I'm going to be in pain for the rest of my retreat. It was a twinge, not necessarily a forerunner of a life sentence. So beginning to see how the mind states are constructed. Now, I think there's, there's a real value in beginning to develop a, a genuine felt sense and familiarity with our states of mind. And part of that, you know, comes really through bringing the intention in to know them, to have those pause moments regularly during the day, to stop and to ask, what is the state of my mind? Because it is going to be the forerunner of everything that unfolds. And there's nothing static about states of mind. That's what's important to see. You know, and this goes back into, the, into my reflection on cultivation. If I know there's a state of mind that is unhelpful, then the next question is, what is missing? 
what, what does this need? You know, if the mind state feels very contracted, what does this need? It needs a sense of cultivation of spaciousness. This is something that can be con- consciously cultivated. If the mind state feels like very dull and very heavy, what does this need? More interest, you know? More interest, more passion, more investigation. You know, if the mind state feels very aversive, what is missing here? What is needed? A genuine sense of beginning to befriend, of kindness, of compassion. If the mind state feels very agitated, very restless, what is needed? Although it feels very counterintuitive, it's stillness. It's stillness. Cultivating more and more stillness. Beginning to pick up the clues of knowing, you know, there is always a mental state. There is always a mood in place. And in a way, we need to begin to develop the kind of literacy, that kind of vocabulary that actually knows these states of mind. It's that first aspect of mindfulness, the simple knowing. The simple knowing. Ah, that's aversion. That's what aversion feels like. Ah, that's agitation. That's what agitation feels like. Ah, that's spaciousness. That's what spaciousness feels like. Ah, that's calm. That's stillness. That's what calm and stillness feels like. Beginning to develop that kind of literacy almost of reading our own kind of psychological, emotional map because that map is making our world. And by beginning to read it, then we know how to engage with what is actually taking place. Sometimes it's sufficient, the simple knowing can have a tremendous power to begin to loosen any hold of clinging and to begin to deepen actually that which is lovely. But sometimes there's a need for an engagement of some intentionality and some cultivation and some effort. It doesn't take a whole lot of, it doesn't take, if you notice, it doesn't take much effort to practice the unskillful. Has anybody noticed that? It's, it's quite good at it, actually. It actually, it doesn't take much effort to practice the unskillful. You know, I don't have to make a lot of effort to be impatient. You know, I really don't feel like I have to make a lot of effort to be agitated or, or worried. It's, it's, it's kind of effortless, isn't it? But it's interesting that until we actually develop the kind of naturalization of the lovely and the liberating, it actually takes some effort to cultivate it. And where do we cultivate it? In the midst of the difficult. So begin to develop that literacy because that determines our, how we engage, how we engage. Huh? And we're not bringing in the patterns again of, oh, this is a difficult mind state, I really need to work on this. We're not bringing in that pattern. We're actually seeing, ah, this is unhelpful. It's unhelpful to clarity. It's unhelpful to stillness. So what can be cultivated here? And this is, you know, and this is kind of like a question that the Buddha really posed in, in exploring the landscape of our mind. He said, cultivate that discernment of knowing what is helpful and what is unhelpful. Not what is right or what is wrong, good or bad, but what is helpful and what is unhelpful. This is important. 
Another question is, is to really ask, what is being fed? What is being fed? Mental states, moods, are not self-perpetuating. They do not have a life of their own. For a mental state to be sustained, it requires being fed. Now, it's either going to be fed with being unconscious of it, or primarily it's going to be fed through thinking, through dwelling. Remember that formula? What we think about, proliferate about, what we dwell upon, what we dwell upon becomes the shape of our mind. But that shape of the mind then goes back to being dwelt upon and being proliferated about for it to be sustained. If we take that, those kind of feeding factors out of mind states, they really don't have any lifeblood anymore. You know? If we bring in the cultivation of the helpful, the unhelpful mind state begins to disappear. Sometimes the clues about our moods are behavior, behavioral. You know, I mean, it, it's, it should occur to us, actually, that if we find ourselves, you know, running around the house, like, wildly and reading the instructions on the tea boxes, it's a big clue, by the way, that there's a mind state going on. You know, if we found that there's a continuity of a certain kind of theme of thinking, you know, judgment or imp impatience or worry, it's a big clue that there's a mind state going on. We need to learn to read the clues and to recognize, you know, our thoughts are often the clue because our thought patterns are always aligned with the state of mind of the moment. You know, the, the mind of kindness is not producing thoughts of aversion. The mind of generosity is not producing thoughts of deficit, you know, and, and, and what I don't have. So our thoughts are always a clue. Sometimes we really begin to sense mind states within the body. And this is, of course, again, where the mindfulness of the body is so helpful. We're not just going to try and unpack the thoughts or unpick the thoughts, but to come to the body. There are embodied mind states. The mind states do tend to have a very major impact in the body. The body of sadness, the body of dullness, you know, the body of aversion, the body of agitation. To learn actually to come into the body of a mind state. Sometimes mind states are, are so embodied that there's not actually that much narrative or story going on. It's actually much more of a sense of disquiet within the body that really can be tracked. But my own sense, particularly with difficult mind states registering on the body, I, I often have mixed feelings about how much to go spend time with those difficult embodied mind states and how much time to actually spend really be bringing into the field of our awareness that which is not affected by that mind state in our body. You know, and I know generally, you know, you would hear the instruction in insight meditation, well, you know, go into the aversion, you know, go into the anxiety, go into the agitation, investigate it in the body, exploring it in the body. Sometimes, sometimes, it's not always so, because sometimes that's absolutely the right thing to do. But sometimes we're going into that bodily 
manifestation of a mind state with an intentionality and with a quality of mindfulness which is already flavored by the state of mind, then I think it feeds it. Then I think it can feed it. You know, I'm really investigating this aversion, and all the time, you know, there's that sense of, I'm averse to my aversion. You know, I'm really investigating this agitation, you know, but actually I really, really just want it to go away. You know, I really want to fix it. So I think there's there's a it's something here to experiment with and to play with because sometimes that's absolutely the right thing to do, but the mind state of aversion is actually not going to actually un, untangle aversion. So sometimes in the body it's actually quite useful to go to what is coexisting with the aversion but not flavored by it. You know, the palm of my hand feels very alive, very easeful. I don't feel any aversion there. Um, you know, the, the back of my neck is, is doing just fine in this moment. Even though my belly may be churning with agitation, the back of my neck is actually doing just great. And, and sometimes it's really, I think it can be really helpful to kind of actually bring that, you know, consciously bring that into the field of our awareness and to see that our experience, even when there's quite a strong mood, the entirety of our experience does not need to be flavored by that mind state. Yes, there can be aversion coexisting with a sense of of easefulness. There can be a lot of agitation going on and yet my little finger is perfectly calm. It's perfectly calm. To actually be bringing that into the field of our awareness, lessening the tendency to seize upon a fragment of experience and mistake it to be the whole. Because this is such a major tendency in our life, to seize upon a fragment of experience and mistake it for being the entirety or the whole. And it's a tendency that goes on in so many different areas, you know. I seize upon a fragment of of what I perceive in you and define you by that fragment. Or I seize upon a fragment of myself, a thought, or a mind state, and mistake it for being who I am. And of course, that is the nature of identification. That is the nature of clinging. And so with moods and with mind states, think of that instruction in, in the Satipatthana, that's repeated again and again, to know a state of mind as a state of mind, to know a mood as a mood, not as mine, not belonging to me, and not who I am. To regard this as a weather system moving through that will move through if it is not surrounded by clinging and by identification. Okay, thank you. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit 
dharmaseed.org slash donate.